Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we read a passage of the Bible, we discuss it together, we unpack it, and we just get a deeper understanding from three different perspectives. Hi, how are we going, everyone? Doing all right? We're doing all right? Hello. How's everyone's everyone's week? It's been been one week since we we, we last recorded, and uh, it's another as as you can already probably tell, it's another remote recording. Probably just should say that at the at the beginning. So, uh, but Morgan aware. has her new fancy mic down in yes. Melbourne, which means the audio <laughs> quality is excellent. Yeah. So hopefully, if you're just listening to the audio, it doesn't sound any different to how we would normally do it do it in person. Mm. Um, and hopefully for the next one, we can get you up, Morgan. That would be that would be great. Definitely. Yeah, has it uh, any interesting things happening this week, or has it just been sort of same oldie for everyone? Um, for me, it's been a bit same oldie. I know I preached at church on Sunday, uh, but because I work for a church, I have spent the past week just catching up with people and drinking lots of coffee and having chats. And it's one of the real joys of doing church work mm. is just the pastoral side of meeting up with people. So that's just been a little insight to my week. Yeah. Nothing really out of the norm, to be honest. Yeah, I've just had a same oldie week, just working. Working, nothing. Yeah, nothing, nothing really happened. exciting this week, but it's been a nice calm week at work, which is a good change. Yeah, so, no, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, and for myself, it's just just uh, continuing to, to work. Um, for those that sort of like remember last time I did this Steadicam course, that new operating camera operating course, and I had my first job nice. last week. So that's very exciting. So hopefully we're moving up in the world of <laughs> in that career aspect of mine. Yeah. But the same old, drove down to Melbourne for a day, then drove back up. <laughs> is that, <laughs> that the same long. old though? That's no, a lot of driving. That is a lot of, that is a lot of driving, but my, my job is all over the place. So nothing's ever sort of really the same. Well, let's get stuck into it. What uh, chapters are we reading today, Morgan? We are reading Matthew 18 to 20. Today's passage comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 18 to 20. Hopefully you have read these chapters in preparation. If not, please pause now and read those chapters. In these chapters, we find Jesus' fourth major sermon, where he teaches on what a community of his disciples should look like. After completing this sermon, Jesus begins his final journey to Jerusalem. So the way that we've been primarily dividing up Matthew is sermon narrative, sermon narrative. And so in chapter 18, we come to Jesus's fourth major sermon in the book of Matthew. But what we find is that it's only 35 verses long. Like this is his fourth big sermon, but it's just chapter 18. So rather than just looking at chapter 18 this week, I figured it was probably smart to look at this sermon of Jesus's, but then also the next few chapters of narrative, Mm. which has him heading towards Jerusalem. So this is our chunk his fourth sermon, one chapter, and then a few chapters of narrative as we head towards Jerusalem. So this is more like sort of teachings opposed to, let's say, the stories and sort of the actions of of Jesus, how we had last time of him hmm. um, walking on water and then the transfiguration. We're now getting to that, uh, going back into that someone's, that more sermon phase, more teaching phase of, of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, he in all the narrative sections of Matthew, he does lots and lots of teaching. Mm. He has lots of things to say, but it's just we could see when the author of Matthew, so Matthew, has put together chunks together to form one cohesive sermon, and that's what we find in chapter 18 here. Mm. Um, what's interesting about this sermon 
is that it is directed just towards his disciples by all appearances. Mm-hmm. And so he sits down with his disciples because they're bickering, which is pretty normal for them, um, and decides to teach them these specific things. Was there anything that um, triggered the this sort of sermon and this level of um, the, the content that surrounds these teachings? Um, was it? Is there any context behind it, or was there any anything that led up to to the reason why Jesus might be giving it to us now? I mean, the only context we get is verse one of chapter eighteen, which is that the disciples came to Jesus and asked, "Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" Mm. Like, there's this clear competition between the disciples of who is going to be greater. We see it come back later towards the end of our section we'll look at. This question mm. comes up again, which makes it very obvious that they don't actually listen to Jesus' <laughs> servant here because they directly go against it almost immediately. So it just seems Jesus sees his disciples bickering and goes, okay, it's time for you to receive some teaching about what a community of my followers is meant to look like because you're not currently looking like mm. that. And you can sort of understand, like, if, if we have a look back at what, what we were discussing Last time, Peter has just been been told that he's going to be the rock mm-hmm. and the foundation of what Jesus' church is going to be built on. And so you can sort of imagine this feeling that all these disciples are getting if if Peter has just been given this sort of bestowed, this great uh, sort of honor, and then all of them might be just sitting there going, well, what about, is, it, is he going to come around to all of us? Mm. Or, what, or what's going to happen? And then you can understand then why this bickering might have happened and then why this, this question may have been been sparked a bit of jealousy may have been running running through them and so mm. to settle any sort of schools that they may have had this question is like all right let's ask them i've heard before a few times the reference of the verse about if your hand or your foot causes you to fall away cut it off and throw it away i have heard that a bit as a new christian it was used as an example verse a few times for context and i think it was used as kind of cutting off ties with things and people that don't bring value. We actually looked at a very, very similar verse when we covered the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has similar teaching. And so he's not teaching self-mutilation here. No. Instead, he's saying yeah. that radical changes are necessary to live a holy mm. life. Is sort mm. of if you had to summarize his point here, which is yeah. do whatever it takes to be holy, no matter what extremes you need to take, make those changes. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's why it was used so early on in coming into faith as like an example teaching. But yeah, I definitely recognized it when reading it from that. And it's probably a good one because it's also like what we're just saying, not to take it so like not to take it literally of like gouging out your eye or cutting off your foot or your arm or or, or whatever and providing that context for someone new reading it because uh, I feel like a lot of a lot of this can now um especially for like non-Christians you could take that all out of context and yep. and really sort of run with it and play play with it. Like now, these are all these are all metaphors for a greater for a greater meaning here, and really extreme metaphors. Like in the verses before that self mutilation bit, Jesus says that it'd be better to drown at the bottom of the ocean than to cause someone to stumble. Like that is a pretty extreme example. And so, yeah, what we're meant to see there is that mm. we need to work really, really hard to make sure that we never cause one of our brothers or sisters in Christ to stumble or doubt their faith. Because it's better to drown, like a lo- a long, slow, painful death of drowning, rather than doing that type of damage to a, a fellow Christian. And further to that, I think it's also then your the, your own t- temptations, because it's quite um, sort of nice to hear that temptations are inevitable. Jesus isn't saying 
uh, is as well as he's giving this standard to us, he is also not saying these this standard is unattainable. Uh, it's so high that you aren't going to reach it. He is saying that yes, these things are going to happen, but to better prepare yourself when it does happen, put these things in place, and these are the these are sort of the action steps. So I quite like that sort of aspect of it of going well. We're still human. We are going to um, hopefully not intentionally um, fall, but here are the here are the action steps to help help you on on that journey because it is unfortunately in this world that we live in inevitable. We should probably take a step back just for a second into the first five verses because mm-hmm. um, we said that this whole sermon starts because the disciples are bickering about who's the greatest. So Jesus starts his sermon before he goes into that section on stumbling and temptation by saying that a little child is sort of the aim when it comes to the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying is that we should be ready to accept any inferior position Mm. because that is what makes you great in God's kingdom. And we actually see Jesus as the ultimate example of this. In Philippians chapter 2, we are told that Jesus, who had equality with God, gave it all up to take on the position of a slave Mm. by coming to earth. And so we see that Jesus is the ultimate example of giving up, being the greatest to take an inferior position. And that is the aim of all Christ's disciples. Then we see the sort of um, becoming like little children sort of scattered throughout the entire Bible. And it, and, it, and, it keeps, and it keeps coming back. And this would be sort of where we have this sort of idea of like having this childlike faith. Mm. And it's not to sort of get mixed up between, well, we've got to be like, like literally, we've got to be like children, and we've got to, we've got to be, and we've got to act like children. But adults can sometimes become very jaded um, <laughs> in life, and sort of having that almost naivety of a child—not not necessarily being so naive or so unaware—but just children have that sort of openness and and uh, that sort of discovery and hungerness to um, discover more about their surroundings and the and, and the world that they, they live in. I just want to jump in quickly there, Josh. Mm-hmm. When we talk about having, at least when Jesus in this passage talks about being like a child, I don't think he's actually alluding to any specific childlike qualities that we are meant to obtain. At least in this particular point, it's purely the status of a child, which in their culture had no status. Like you were the lowest of a low as a child. And so I think specifically here, Jesus is talking about the status of a child is what we're meant to emulate. Mm. Now, that doesn't override any point <laughs> that you were just saying about there are there are things about children that are really good that we lose as adults mm. and that we should definitely take into other elements of our life. And there's some really, really positive things about a child, like humility or innocence or receptiveness mm. or trustfulness. Like there's some really good traits there. But just to keep in mind that at least in this one specific place in this sermon, I definitely think it is the status of a child that we're meant to look at here. No, I agree because the role of children in biblical times were quite different to uh, the role of children sort of in our present present day. It's not, correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't quite the same. No, you sort of had your big families and you, you almost waited to see which child would make it to adulthood and then they got all the responsibilities from there. But as children, they had very little rights or respects or any status. And so it would have been quite radical for Jesus saying, you need to be like these children. Oh, absolutely. And the kingdom of, of heaven is is being humble like these these children. And I think for for the disciples hearing that they'll be like, well, Hank, what? But we're adults. We're we're we 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 know better. We know better than them. They're mm-hmm. just they're just dumb little kids over there playing 
with whatever they're doing, aren't we meant to be the ones that are for the kingdom of heaven? It's like, no, you need to be like these children. Which then leads us into the section we've already discussed about do not let anyone cause a little child to stumble. In fact, don't give into temptation at all, which then leads into the parable of the wandering sheep. I have a question about this. Does the lost sheep represent like a lost human or lost person and then like Jesus is the shepherd? Yeah, definitely. I think you're bang on when it comes to the interpretation of that parable is the point of this parable is to say that Jesus wants to see people saved. Like he will leave the 99 saved sheep to make sure he can go out and find the one that has been lost. If you if you initially hear it, as weird as that might sound, it's like, well, why would he go out just for one? If you flip it, why would you, you would go out for those that haven't either heard Jesus or mm-hmm. those on the fringe or those uh, that sort of maybe wandering away from the church or the community. Because there's no real point of just only serving those that actually want to still be there. Because mm. they're there, it's, it's already it's already happened. They've already got that willingness to to be a part of it. So put as well as putting your effort there. So we shouldn't um, just not say no. We need to not put any effort to those that are still like in in terms of a church context. Those that are still part of the church and still part of the congregation should definitely definitely still serve them. But they've already taken that step and that uh, wanting to be there. So let's put our effort also into going after those that may be just on the fringes, those that are that have walked away or those that haven't come into the fold yet. Going off that, I've set myself a challenge at church in the last few months to take a new person every single week to a service. Mm, wow, huge. And that's been a bit of a challenge getting them there. But after, I'm just, I just say, just give it one chance, um, see how you go. What have you actually got to lose? I'll shout your coffee after. And it's been really cool to see taking different people to church. Just That's a little so side note that I'd share. But yeah, mm. just asking that question and putting it out there to people is really cool. And I 100% yeah. agree with what Josh is saying about that. Yeah, the whole parable, I think, is well summed up in verse 11. We don't have verse 11. That's another <laughs> trick. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, I was just, I'm like, hang on. But, but verse 11, well, I'm like, hang on. But the parable of the lost sheep starts at 12. What do you, oh. <laughs> What? Ah, not this again. (laughs) That's number four. I feel like this is my job on this podcast is to point out (laughs) things like this. So in our oldest manuscripts of Matthew, which we're very confident about the accuracy, there is no verse 11 there. The original manuscripts we have is what is represented in our text here. Mm. But in some old manuscripts, not the oldest, but in some old ones, verse 11 there reads... The Son of Man came to save what is lost, which is taken directly from Luke 19.10. And I think what some scribe at some point has done has gone, oh, I should probably better explain this parable because Jesus just says the parable and doesn't explain it. So I'm going to chuck in an extra line, which I know is true and biblical because it's found in another gospel, Mm. and put it in here so everyone understands what this parable is about. And this parable is about the fact that Jesus came to save what was lost which is exactly how Morgan interpreted it straight away without needing this extra verse there anyway. So yeah, so sorry, you. random scribe <laughs> who decided to try and add a verse in the Bible. On to you, random scribe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good um, challenge though, Morgan, of uh, it's, uh, that you've set yourself, mm. just to quickly go back to that. Uh, it's very admirable because especially sort of growing growing up in the church from, from birth and it becomes very difficult and you almost become 
to use the word again, jaded by bringing new people because you've you've either done it a number of times where you're just like, ah, I just mm. the amount of effort that I put that I put in, I'm not reaping that reward out of mm. it, and so you yeah. become either very tired, tired by it, and, and you just say, oh, well, I'll just I'll just interact with the people that already rock up, and I won't invite anyone new, or especially won't invite like non-Christian people. It's very admirable, and it's and it's and it's always nice to to hear that that's happening, and it's sort of. Put, puts that sort of challenge back on. I know for myself, going, actually, no, maybe I should do more of this. Mm. Maybe I should actually mm. go out and invite more more people and and take that leap again. Because, like you said, the worst they can say is no. It's not like it's going to ruin relationships and friendships. Yeah, and like using that rejection, like if they say no, they say no. Like you have to go in with the expectation that they might say no, but on the off chance they don't, like you don't know how much that person needs it. So I took a friend and she didn't realise what it was. She thought I was taking her to a cult, but she's like, I'll come along because I support you. And she was so shocked and she loves it and now she's coming along. So even if you get one person out of the 10 people you take over 10 weeks, it's one person that has found Mm. it. And I think maybe, Mm. yeah, listeners could maybe set as a challenge to try and take someone new to church or try and have that conversation with someone that they think could benefit from it. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, that's a fantastic challenge. I mean, it, it is quite tiring sometimes inviting people to church because what I find is whenever I bring a friend, I'm hyper aware of every little thing that is happening. But that is literally no excuse to not just be putting the invite out there often and regularly. Yeah. And I think that's a really good challenge to set for everyone listening. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be going like taking them to a Sunday service. You could say, I'm getting coffee with this friend from church. Do you want to come along and join? And then conversations start and you kind of plant that curiosity seed and then they get interested and then they come along. Yeah, I mean, that is the strategy of Sam Chan in his book, uh, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy, Mm. I think is the title. Don't necessarily quote me. But he says one of the best evangelistic strategies is just combining your networks. So Mm. introducing your non-Christian friends to your Christian friends, just in social settings to start with. And Mm. the more people around them that believe the gospel, the more likely they are to give it a shot when it comes to it. Mm. So that's a yeah. really helpful idea. Back into the passage, one of the uh, things that confused me the most as I sat through and read this Sermon of Jesus is verse 10, which seems to suggest the idea of guardian angels because it says, for I tell you that their angel in heaven will always see the face of my father. It's sort of saying here the little ones being referring to the children of the kingdom of heaven. Mm of what we'd like to be, and that they have what you're referring to as guardian angels. At least on first reading, that seems to be what is being suggested here. And uh, I always thought, oh, I've, I'm a well-educated Christian. I don't believe in guardian angels. And yet this verse just stood out to me as I read it, being like, oh, hmm. what, what is happening here? It is interesting, because especially because it's, it's specifically saying they're angels. Hmm. Like, we, may, we might not be having this conversation if it just said the angels. Yep. But it's just that that one word that we're like, oh, that stopped us to to think about it. On one hand, I think I, I share the same sentiment as you do, Lockie, of not that sort of fairy tale-esque guardian angel. There's this one angel that's that's dedicated to you, that's looking after you, that will protect you no matter what might happen. It seems too good to be true sort of thing. Maybe it's to have a stab at it. Maybe it's referring to that God's looking after after you and it's more sort of that aspect of God is looking after his people in in the kingdom, specifically maybe through angels. Uh, maybe the, the angels are more referred to as his tools, for lack of a better way of describing it. I'm not really sure, but that's my stab. Yeah, I perceive angels as like these 
angelic fairies, like the opposite to what you were just saying, <laughs> like sparkly white flying pretty things. You see them as angelic, which is a funny way to describe it, and, and, and angel, <laughs> these angelic glowing <laughs> beings that are white robed with white big wings that are sort of glowing, glowing, like wherever they go, they're, they're glowing and f- floating, the sort of very romantic, yeah. fantasized version of angels. And previously we've talked about angels and how um, there's been different interpretations over the over the years. And I just see them as kind of a like come to us, like big flashing white light LED arrows in the sky, like pointing to heaven's doors with angels all around. Like I see it as like an enticing thing. And like the angels are an example of like the niceness of heaven and what it could look like. That could just be me though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my thoughts as I thought about this verse was that angels in the Bible often represent other things. And so for instance, in the book of Daniel, angels represent the spiritual state of nations. So each nation in the book of Daniel sort of has an angel that represents them. Or in the book of Revelation, angels represent the spiritual state of the churches. So each church is an angel that represents them in a sense of rather than saying this church in Laodicea, you say the angel of Laodicea. Like there's there's kind of this idea that it represents its spiritual status before God. Mm. And so the only other way that I could think about this verse was to think, oh, maybe that is what Jesus is doing here, is he's talking about the spiritual state of these little ones by referring to angels mm. rather than inherently teaching that there is a guardian angel for everyone. Because I, I can't think of a single other place in scripture you could base that case off at all. And I agree. And, and just sort of as you were saying that, and I looked down at just to relook at that verse, I also had that same like similar thought of the little ones and the angels are one and the same. In that more sort of saying, well, the little ones will always be in the presence of the Heavenly Father. Confrontation is something I very much struggle with. I'll I'll be quite open and honest. When it comes to confrontation, um, it's something that I dread having having to do and something that I very much always put off, especially when I know that you might need to have these hard conversations with, with people. And it's something that I very much... Yeah, it is a, it is a struggle and I know it and it's something that I know that I need to to work to work on myself especially because I'm the type of person that doesn't like to disrupt the status quo of things. I ve- I get very comfortable in sort of routine and my own little bits of traditions that I might make up for myself and so when that gets disturbed that's where I sort of almost internally freak out and go, "Oh, change, I don't like it." And then sort of having conflict within the church sparks change and then that's when sort of those uncomfortable feelings start to to rise and then if confrontation then needs to happen that's yeah it's the it's always the last thought on on my mind not to say that I can't do it it's just I know it's something that for me personally I need to work on oh I I so understand that because I'm exactly the same the way that I'm weakest as a youth pastor is in disciplining kids when necessary like mm. I suck at being the bad cop <laughs> and yet that is part of that role that is sometimes necessary and part of our Christian church experience that is necessary according to mm. Jesus. Because this whole sermon is about how should a community of my followers look like? And he's already talked about, hey, the onus is on you guys to try your best not to sin. But when one of your brothers does sin, here's the way you go about it. And so to quickly step through it, the process is pretty simple. It is first out of love and pastoral care for the person who has sinned, 
that you approach them. So we're called to not ignore the faults we see in our brothers and sisters, but to approach them, confront them with the hope that they will repent. And if they repent, the process is done and over. But if they don't, then you are to take one or two others and hopefully by having more people, this will add persuasion to your appeal to them to repent. But if this still doesn't work, then you are to go before the church and the church is there to call them to repent, to call out their sin. And so this is the process given by Jesus. I think churches and communities of Jesus' disciples suck at this, <laughs> but it is also the clearly God-given way of doing discipline within the church. And then further fur- further on from it, I think this is very, a very good bit of teaching to not just for the church, but for the wider world in general, because especially, and I don't know if it's changing, and maybe hopefully it slowly, slowly is, but we live in this sort of cancel culture world where it is very easy, especially with the advent of social media, um, and then looking at the back catalogue of social media. You, you hear time and time again of of people, it just takes one person to scroll through what someone might have said years ago. They then rehash that and go, no, let's now cancel this person. You're like, well, can't you see the change that this person has made? Why Why are you bringing up things that were like 10 years ago? You know, It's a bit like mind-boggling. Yeah, we all probably got social media as teenagers. Mm. Like, Teenage Lachlan almost definitely said some real dumb things on social media. And so so this whole idea of cancel culture doesn't allow a person to change or grow from it. It just me- it just means that they get shut down, get shunned away, and then uh, for nothing to uh, to ever to ever happen. and And it doesn't promote any change in that person. Mm. I was just gonna mention something. Um, at the end of this part in, um, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. That's um, been very apparent. Like I've seen that a lot in my church and my kind of um, community groups during the week. Um, if anyone prays, like there's always two or three people with their hands on the person. Um, and being a Pentecostal church too, like during worship, they're always mentioning this verse on stage and like oh. it makes sense now a lot. Well. This is where I've got to push back because this verse being misused is my biggest pet peeve (laughs) in all of scripture. I hear this verse so often misused. So I'll walk into a church service. My church doesn't do it for the record, but I'll walk into another person's church service and they'll be like, oh, how good is it? Look at everyone here today. God promises that where there's two or three of us, that's where he is. So how good is it that there's like a hundred of us in this room right now? God is among us. It gets me so angry because it's it's wrong. Like God is with us when we're individuals and alone. This verse is in the context of rebuking people. The context of this verse is where two or three Christians are gathered, God will be with them in their rebuking of someone's sin. Like that is the context. And I hear this verse so often misused and it is literally my biggest pet peeve. So I'm sorry to unload all of that (laughs) upon you, Morgan. It's just you touched upon like the biggest issue I have with people misusing the Bible. Hit a bit of a sore spot. (laughs) Yeah, which is like the declaration that God isn't with us when we're alone. We need two or three people for God to be gathered. No, you started saying that and I'm like, because I knew exactly what this rant No, but I think <laughs> even if that's kind of like the wrong, I still think there's power in numbers and people. Oh, there's power in God's followers being <laughs> united around something. hundred percent. Don't get me wrong, but it's the implication that people make that, oh, there's two or three of us, so God must be here now. I'm like, no, <laughs> he's been here the whole time. 
he was here as you drove alone to church. He was yeah, in literally this building. as you read that line, like when you walk into church, they say, "How good is it that there's people?" That's literally yeah, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and uh, I get that you want to encourage people to gather together, but there's ways of doing that without misusing this verse. This next parable that Jesus is giving us here. The title that that Jesus sort of gives is sort of a bit of a mouthful. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decides to bring his accounts up to date with a servant who has borrowed money for him. Not like, oh, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, you know, nice little like catchphrase. No, the kingdom of heaven is like this thing. Yeah, it's quite a mouthful. It uh, it leads into a much bigger story than some of the more simple parables. I just recognize the 70 times seven. I've heard it in a few Christian couples wedding vows before. Um, So I'm assuming it's just all around forgiveness and forgiving people. Yeah. Well, that's how the the parable starts, right? Mm. Is Peter comes up to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive? The rabbis of Jesus's time had many discussions about this very question, and they mostly landed on three. Like, you forgive someone three times. And then Peter, P- Peter probably thinks he's amazing. He's like, Jesus, should I forgive seven times? Like, Peter has more than doubled the expected amount of most other rabbis. And so mm. he's probably feeling amazing about himself. And it's ironic that it's it's Peter who's also asking this because <laughs> he does he does stumble a little bit. And he reckon he counted how many times he's, he's stuffed <laughs> up so far and went, oh, I need seven forgivenesses, seven, please, th- Jesus. Yeah, and please, please say yes, Jesus. Please say yes. <laughs> and then Jesus responds with no. Like, his point is unlimited forgiveness. You, um, to forgive as many times. Like, you're not to count. So I know he gives a direct number, and there's some discussion about the translation about whether it is 77 times or 490 times, so 70 times seven. Mm. It is probably 77 as a throwback to Genesis 4:24 when um, a guy called Lamech claims that he will take vengeance 77 times so it's probably more accurately translated 77 but that's actually not the point at all no. like if we're trying to figure out the exact amount of times that's the exact opposite of the pedantic calculation which Jesus is actually mm. against he's saying so many times that you're not going to bother keeping count. And, and especially, it's like, who's who's keeping track of that anyway? It's like, do you get up to the 71st time and then go, oh, well, I've got one more forgiveness? <laughs> imagine imagine doing that with your own children. Like, you know, your children could might just like stuff up all the time, but at, and but you're still going, still going to love them no matter what. Mm. And so it's sort of like this idea of like, why on earth would would you like, like in the context of, of your own kids go, no, nah, that's it. I'm, I can't forgive you ever, ever again. And it's like, oh, I just, just took a cookie before eating their fruit. Like, come on. But as Jesus then goes to an, explain in a parable, mm. it's meant to be these huge numbers that just convey the point of you are just to keep forgiving. Forgiveness is unlimited. Mm. And that is the whole point of what Jesus is saying here in this little parable. I actually uh, did the maths on this parable, if anyone's interested. Okay. Um, so the first servant who is forgiven by the king, he owes the king 10,000 bags of gold, which is approximately $8 billion in today's economy. <laughs> and then the second servant that is then abused by the first servant and thrown into prison owes him a hundred silver coins, which is about 10 grand. So like still a significant amount, but nothing compared to the 8 billion that that first servant mm. was just forgiven of. And this is sort of saying like that we shouldn't be hypocrites. Mm. Nothing's hidden here. It's very, very clear and sort of the, you know, the king being able to, the king, the high, this, you know, this high powered person forgiving the servant and then the servant not 
not not doing the same. We shouldn't be be a hypocrite like this this servant. And and so the king guessing is is meant to represent God and God's for, for God's forgiveness here. And and we are the we are the servants. Yeah. So in the same way that. God has forgiven all of our sins. He's forgiven all $8 billion worth of all the sins we've done against him. And so when someone sins against us, and that is one sin, or maybe even a few, but it's nothing compared to what God has forgiven. So don't be a hypocrite. Forgive them as God forgave. And this is a tough, it's a tough, it's a tough pill to pill to swallow. And it's it's something that we all we all might struggle with. And we've talked about this before of how it how it can be quite um difficult. Um Especially when emotions play play into it, and you can feel so strongly in a, in, a, in a certain in a certain way, and it's not to say that you need to forgive that person for their sins Im- immediately in that, but but be like God and 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 humble and humble yourself. And with that, we finish Jesus's fourth sermon, and because we still have time. Let's dive into the narrative of chapters 19 and 20 as Jesus starts his final journey towards Jerusalem. And the next episode, we'll actually see him in Jerusalem and see his Jerusalem adventures. Mm. Ah, hot topics. Love it. (laughs) Divorce and marriage. I personally feel like we could almost skate by on the topic of divorce because Jesus has already taught about divorce in Sermon of the Mount, Mm. and we already spent some time discussing it in episode three, Mm. which is us looking at Jesus' teachings and Sermon of the Mount. And so this is almost a direct repeat, but the difference here is he's confronted by the Pharisees who ask him a question purely to try and trap him. And so they already know what his answer is going to be. They've heard him teach on divorce before, Mm. but now they're trying to trap him. And they're trying to trap him because they know that his views on divorce is different from what Moses allowed in the Old Testament. Mm. And they're hoping to try and show everyone that there is a conflict between Jesus and Moses. And if there's a conflict between Jesus and Moses, then they think they've got an easy case against him. Mm. They can they can show everyone that he is not from God because Moses was clearly from God. Mm. So that's, I think, their intention here because we've already been taught about divorce before from Jesus. Yeah, that whole trying to, to trip him up by like, whoa, actually, here is here is what Moses said. He can't can't go against Moses, right? And, and he's what, not. Well, that's that's my question. What what are our thoughts? It says in verse 8, Jesus replied, "Moses permitted you to divorce your wives." Now, I won't finish reading that verse because it gives away the answer, but <laughs> is there a contradiction between Jesus and Moses here? No. Great answer. <laughs> Why? Why? Well, because Moses, Mo, and I. Hopefully, I'm getting this right. But Moses is Moses is more saying what Jesus is saying is more about the unfaithfulness of your partner. If I'm getting that, because because Jesus is more giving the like he did on the Sermon of the Mount is giving the more in depth reasoning, not just the legalistic view on it. And so Jesus is getting more the the heart of of the of the issue of it's adult adultery if you are uh, if you're doing it in an unfaithful manner so moses in deuteronomy 24 says that you can initiate a divorce if one of the partners does something indecent now the <laughs> problem with something indecent is it is exceptionally vague mm. and so you had your hardcore rabbis which jesus actually probably sits among that goes adultery is the only thing that is indecent that's the only way to end a marriage and then you had other rabbis who were like if your wife prepared a bad meal for you that is indecent, mm. divorce her. Like that's sort of like the extremes of the viewpoints here. Mm. And so Moses allows divorce and Jesus is like, 
he only allowed it because of how sinful you all are. Like, that's the only reason he allowed it, which I think leads to a discussion about what was the purpose of the Mosaic law. We already see that Jesus thinks that there are certain laws that were given that aren't perfectly reflective of the ideal. The, the, the Mosaic law was because of how far the Israelite people had drifted from God. It was at the time very much more like what we would describe as much more like legalistic in nature and very much more quote-unquote black and white to serve those people at the time. And then Jesus came in and to give more of an in-depth reason and an in-depth uh, sort of more understanding about uh, about it or and really get to sort of more of the heart of the issues rather than just a blanket, don't do this because I said so. Several years ago, I used to write articles for a Christian website and I wrote an article on what the purpose of the Mosaic Law was. Now, in writing that article, I took a lot from this Christian author, Paul Copan, and he says something along these lines which is that the purpose of the Mosaic law was to make several moral improvements to Israel without completely overhauling the ancient Near Eastern social structures. So these incremental steps towards an ideal could be seen through various stages of Israel's development, with the most obvious step being found in Numbers 27 in relation to Zelophehad's daughters. Now, I don't know if I pronounce Zelophehad correctly, um, but basically Numbers 27 um, the daughters of Selofa had come to Moses and say, hey, our father didn't have sons. The law only talks about inheritance going to the sons. Mm. What's up with that? And Moses adjusts the Mosaic law to no account for their situation, which shows that the Mosaic law as a whole is making several moral improvements in Israel. It's, it's pointing mm. them towards God and everything it does. But there is, even from the moment it was given to when it is amended slightly, there is still growth to go. Mm. And Jesus is effectively saying divorce is one of those topics where it started movement in the right direction by really restricting divorce, but he's saying that there is still further to go on this topic. Mm. And so, therefore, I'm not conflicted with Moses. It's just I'm going to the real desire of God. And Jesus' teaching freaks out the disciples who then declare, well, maybe we should never get married. (laughs) Maybe it's just easier just not to. (laughs) Which is fair. Some people think this is actually Jesus here defending why he is single and unmarried, which would have been very uncommon for a a man in his 30s in that time period Mm. to be unmarried. Is this then where maybe we get this sort of stem of like uh, Catholic priests not allowing marriage? I'm not exactly sure where they base that theology from. This might be a place. I suspect they take it more from Paul in his letters where he writes that um, it is good for the sake of gospel work, to remain unmarried because you have more time, which is just an objective fact. But then he goes on and says, but it is not wrong to get married. So Paul tries to uphold that both singleness and marriage are good things and that you actually have freedom in Christ to choose which one you would want to have. So this this next part sort of um, follows suit in a couple of other uh, people coming up to, to Jesus and asking how they can seek eternal life. Mm. This isn't sort of new to us, this. Other people have, have come up and asked this same question, so we get another another person coming up and asking about how to get, get eternal life. And it's quite interesting because this sort of touches on that sort of idea of good deeds and, and the misconception that if I just do good deeds or do good actions or quote-unquote be a good 
person, which personally is a pet peeve of mine. It's like, oh, I'm just a good person. I'm going to heaven. It's like, well, you're missing the point here. It's actually the relational part of it more so. But Jesus is 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 giving, well, this is what you actually need to do. Um, and it is not necessarily that, and I think it's not that for us, our takeaway is that we then need to go sell all of our possessions. But it's more talking looking at the heart of the issue of what do you need to give up in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? What is that thing that is holding you back from from God? And it's all very specific and specific to the individual to the individual. Because I think the whole interaction is quite interesting. This man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus rattles off a whole bunch of the Ten Commandments, but he only rattles off those that have really obvious, observable actions associated with them. So ones that you can quite easily tick Mm. off in your mind. Like, I have not murdered anyone, tick. But he leaves out, probably most importantly, the first and the last commandment. So the first is, have nothing before God. And the last is, do not covet your neighbor's items. Mm. Both of which you can see how a rich man might struggle with. Mm. And Mm. the rich man, I think, realizes this. He's like, oh, yeah, I've done all the ones you've listed. What else? Like, clearly something else is going on here. And then Jesus shows that he's not been obeying the first and last commandment because he's unwilling to let go of his money. And so I think for us, it's more more to do with what is our crutch that it's that's taking us away from God or um, stopping us from progressing further with, with God or what comforts do we have that we're not finding that same comfort in God. Yeah, I think you're right. Jesus doesn't command all of his disciples to do this, just this one particular person who clearly that is their barrier to entry. I actually found what I thought was a very insightful quote by a guy, by a guy named Robert Gundry, and here's what he says. That Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all of their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. In other words, if we find that command challenging, mm. Jesus would probably say it to us. If we find that command easy, then Jesus probably wouldn't say it to us because the point of this section is to have no barrier between you and God, nothing that is elevated higher than God. Yeah, and it's and it's one of those kind of like it's kind of like a parable, but it's not. It, it's sort of not it, it's one of those like little bits of teaching that we especially if you know it sort of take it as a like as a write-off we go oh no we it doesn't apply to me so i so i'm not going to like i'm not going to sell all my possessions so i'm not you know that this this part of the bible doesn't apply to me but no 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 yeah like what we've just said you're missing you're missing the point here of, of what that actually really means to you but there is hope because jesus uses a stupid image which is a camel one of the biggest common animals and trying to get through one of the smallest possible holes, which is the eye of a needle. And he says, it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but by God, all things are impossible. And so he takes salvation out of our hands and places it into the supernatural work of God. Mm. And so while it is impossible for any of us to receive salvation, but especially those who value money, it is technically possible. And it harks from that, like, you know, you could be such a good sort of Sunday attending person, do all these activities with the church, do all these sort of uh, these quote-unquote good things. But if you're just going through the motions and you don't have this 
relationship with God, and you and you don't actually realize that the salvation is not through your good deeds; it's actually through God. Then mm. you won't you won't ent- enter it. You could quickly just get so caught up in, well, you know, I've given this X amount of money away. I've done, or like I'm I'm always there at the bake sale, <laughs> you know, like done all these quote unquote good things, but it's it's missing again. It's missing that point of. It's not. It's not through your actions. It's through God's actions, which is something the rich young ruler didn't realize, because he kept asking, "What can I do to inherit eternal life?" He was very focused on what he could do. Whereas Jesus's final point at the very end of this section is that it's not what you do; it is what God does. Mm. This um, parable, it is the kind of very annoying ones, and that quote unquote like. The Bible is very unfairly fair mm. sort of thing because you, you sort of read it and especially when you get up to the end of it of this vineyard worker getting the all these different workers at the different stages of the day and we see that the, the uh, first workers come in at the morning, then midday, then late in the day and then even to, to the point of like, you know, it's just one hour's worth of work but they're still getting all paid the same. And I know I would be quite annoyed <laughs> if I started the, work, the working day and still got the same amount of pay as this other person. You would be like, hang on, where's fair work and all this? And like, where's, like where does... I, I've done so much, so much more effort. I know I would also get get annoyed at at that if it was my own my own job. And he's like, oh, but this is this is this is un this is unfair and everything for sure. Like this is the parable I alluded to earlier about how God's generosity doesn't always seem fair to us. Mm. Like everyone in this parable receives what is fair. Like as in the workers who worked the whole day agreed to one day's wage. It's just that God's generosity to others is huge and God's generosity doesn't always seem fair to us. I found another really, I think, insightful quote by another Robert, actually, this time Robert Stein. And here is what Robert Stein has to say about this parable. It is frightening to realize that our identification with the first workers and hence with the opponents of Jesus reveals how loveless and unmerciful we basically are. We may be more under law in our thinking and less under grace than we realize. God is good and compassionate far beyond his children's understanding. Feel convicted after that uh, <laughs> that little quote there, Josh. Uh, a, little, a little called out when, we, when we're, we're identifying with the first word. <laughs> but it, but it, is, it, it, rings, it rings out some truth, though. It is, it is like we get caught, we get caught up in in that especially being christians for quite quite a while it's like well hang on i've shouldn't i get some some sort of special treatment it's like no no you're all equal in the eyes of god what's the um kind of difference the end of 19 it says but many who are first will be last and the last first and at the end of 20 it says the last will be first and the first last like it's opposite is there any significance in that it's a really good observation morgan like i'd never realize that the first and last are swapped around in the two different times. Yes, Jesus says it. On something. <laughs> I have no idea what significance that may have. That's a like really good observation. It just seems like where they've put it, it's like after a lesson, or is it like after they've done that? Like why? I mean, in chapter twenty, the order that they are paid in is that the last workers to be hired through to the first workers. So there's some nice parallel there with then saying the. F- last will be first because that's the order of payment but i don't even see how that necessarily changes what it means so i have no idea what the significance may be but clearly jesus reversed the order the second time he said that phrase no i'm not sure about the the order but it's sort of like and it will get and we'll get into sort of that 
as we go through this chapter more into the serving of others, but that sort of upside down period pyramid approach of the whoever's up the top is actually serving is actually the the servant and serving those below them, and it's not the other way, and it's not the other way around. It's not those that are below are actually serving the top because a, a humble and a good leader will actually be there with with everyone and make sure they're all fine and serve them than the other way around. And so it's sort of not entirely saying that, but it's more hinting at it as we get to sort of fur- further on into this chapter. Then Jesus predicts his death for the third time. And uh, fun facts with Lachlan, this is the first time crucifixion has been explicitly mentioned. So he's not just saying, I'm going to die. This time he actually says, how? Almost in a way, softening the blow by like slowly adding bits of information to it. Is this the last time he says this? Is it only only three? I think so. But I haven't read far enough ahead recently to (laughs) uh, remember that for certain. And then after he predicts his death, Jesus sees an example that his followers did not listen to his previous sermon again. We already saw that the way they treated the little children showed they didn't listen to his sermon in chapter 18. And now that they are again fighting for who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom shows they didn't listen to his sermon in chapter 18. It's coming from the mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah as well. It's not just coming from the disciples. It's but I com- don't think James and John are uh, pushing back on the idea. No, of course not. But you know, it's just funny that it's not not even just from them. It's like the mother has got their back as well and sort of like, oh, where are they going to sit? Why is it um, where it says, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give? Is there like a reason why or just? Yeah, I think God has a plan in place for who will sit and rule with Jesus in eternity. Mm. And Jesus is not the one who's going to give it to James and John from the request <laughs> of a mother. It's interesting because we, we think if we think about this in sort of more of that the uh, context of that classic king and queen, you had the king up the top or the or the queen, whichever whichever one uh, came first. Um, as the most powerful uh, position in the kingdom, and then the and then it went the right hand. Whoever was the right hand of of the king or queen was then the the second most powerful person in the kingdom, and then it then it went to 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 the left. So the context, like really here, is that they these are two s- seats that have enormous power and weight to them that is being requested that they that they sit at, and it's actually quite a a big deal. It's not just like, oh, you know, round table, uh, who are you going to sit next to? These are these seats actually have a bit of significance to them. Yeah, definitely. And Jesus' response is quite telling. You know that the rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Like it just totally flips that idea of authority and ruling it over on its head. And so he's like, you've asked for a position of great authority and power, but that's just not how this kingdom works. No, and you need to drink from from that bitter cup. The cup of suffering. That's what, mm. yeah, the cup there is meant to represent. And to be fair, James and John do drink from that cup. James is yeah. the first of the apostles, if we don't count Judas, to die. Mm. And then John is the last one to die, but that's because he goes through a lot. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like it, it's like that foreshadowing of, of that to, to, in order to, to earn this, there, there will be ups and downs and there will be this hardship that you will have to in, endure mm. to it. I was going to ask that of whether or not they were the first to be martyred. Yeah, James 
Acts 12 dies at the hands of Herod. And so it's pretty early on. Mm. But again, this comes full circle. Like Jesus' sermon in chapter 18, as we started this whole episode, is that you should desire the place of a servant, be like a child, be lowly in status. That is the way that this kingdom works. And here we are two chapters later, the disciples asking for a great position of power and authority. And Jesus again needing to be like, no, this is not how my kingdom works. And I think another important uh, important point to sort of to pick out of this and sort of more specifically when it's talking about sort of drinking from that cup of suffering is that when you become a Christian, it's not going to be that there, like there will be the highs of it, but there also will be the lows just because you have committed yourself to Christ being baptized, sort of your sins being washed away, being brought anew, and you are now part of this kingdom. It doesn't mean that you are now excluded from all the other bits of suffering and hardships that might come from this world. Those things are still going to happen. And it's not to dwell on and and be sort of real depressing of, oh, life is going to now be really tough. But it's more just to say that, that there will be this balance and there will be this ebb and flow and, and not to just get caught up that, oh, everything should be great. It's like, no, no, life is going to happen and we just need to realize that even though we are uh, Christians and we um, have a loving father, that yes, he will still protect us, but we will go through through those ups and downs in life. I just think it's so random how they keep bringing healings in, like they just chuck them in here and there. Like I get it, but <laughs> I get what you mean because we're st- we're starting to get that feeling of we're getting more of these like sort of parables, we're getting more of these teachings, and we're starting to see less of these uh, miracles in in healing. So it does feel a bit, especially after everything that we've read and everything that came before, it is a bit random to just then throw in two blind men getting getting healed. Mm. The significance here is that these are the last two miracles Jesus performs outside of Jerusalem. Mm. Full stop. So it says it happens as they were leaving Jericho. Now, this is not the Jericho of Old Testament fame. (laughs) This is a new city that they constructed and they gave a very cursed name based on their history. So I don't know why they gave it the same name. Mm. Um, but, But this is the last major town before Jerusalem. So if we've been following the trajectory of Jesus in these chapters, we see that every time a location is mentioned, it is a step closer towards Jerusalem. Because these two chapters have been the slow movement towards Jerusalem. And here is his, the last possible town he could enter before Jerusalem, one final miraculous healing before we now arrive in the capital and we look forward to his death that we've been warned about three times. So he does still heal, but not yeah. any, and not anywhere else. It's now just because we're, we're getting to that pointy end of the story. It's now more just contained, self-contained there. From this point onwards, the rest of the book of Matthew happens over the course of about a week and it's all mm. based in Jerusalem. Wow, one week. <laughs> yeah. Probably my takeaway from this episode is um, power in putting yourself in a position that's inferior, like childlike almost. So kind of, um, yeah, humbling yourself and putting yourself in that position. Um, and I think also, like I mentioned before, I'd love to um, encourage people to take someone new to church or have that conversation, even if it's a coffee and just a chat, to have that conversation, have a chat, um, open someone else's eyes and heart up or encourage them to do so. So, yeah, I'd love to challenge everyone to do that. Such a good challenge. And yeah. it comes directly from Jesus' teaching about leaving the 99 sheep for the one. 
Like mm. such mm. a good way to end that episode, Morgan. For me, my uh, big takeaway is I have several times commented in this episode about how the disciples just didn't get the teachings of Jesus. Like their actions in the two chapters of narrative we have are directly opposed to what Jesus literally just taught them in chapter 18. And so my takeaway is to try my utter best to not be like that. Like there are many Christian teachings I still need to really take to heart and learn. And so my aim is to not be like these disciples, but to try and get it a little bit faster, if at all possible. Just aware that there are definitely things I'm going to miss just like they did. Mm, that's good. And, and and for me, it's it's more those hard lessons that Jesus is giving us about how to be how to be the model disciple here at the beginning of uh, chapter 18 and how to how to conduct yourself and and sort of stepping out in in faith and either having to have those difficult conversations with people or with all this and not just sitting comfortably uh, with where with where where you're at and and maybe putting yourself into into the uncomfortable so that I myself can grow, but those and also those around me can also grow as well. As we say always, this as as we as we come to the end end of our episode, just want to remind everyone that check us out on on social on social medias and um, post any questions, queries, or just any comments or any takeaways that that you get out of this. We'd just love to see what your thoughts are on on these on these passages, these teaching, these parables, because uh, we might we may have missed something, and uh, you may have had a thought of thought, and we'd love just to to see your takeaways as as well with that, as well as. Um, if you've got any questions or, or uh, you're grappling with with anything, and hopefully we'll be able to do our best to try and to to answer them. As always, you can listen to this podcast wherever you consume podcasts, and it's up on YouTube. So if you're listening to it and you want to see our smiling faces, you can go watch it on YouTube. Or if you watch this on YouTube and you want to just hear the audio, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or, or wherever it is, uh, wherever you prefer to listen to it. It will be there. Uh, don't forget to. Uh, subscribe and rate the podcast. It really does help if you uh, rate it, leave leave a comment. It really does help us in sort of getting getting discovered discovered. And on the topic of being discovered, share this podcast around. Uh, share it with people that haven't haven't heard it, or with someone who says, "Oh no, I I will listen to it." Make sure that they 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 do listen to it because we'd love this podcast to to uh, uh, to be discovered by everyone and just to sort of like spread like wild wildfire because not only for for the podcast here but we we want th- this book and and God's word to to spread further. Morgan, can I get you to pray for us? God, we just thank you for this opportunity to dive deeper into your word. We pray over all our listeners and pray that they will benefit from what we are doing. We pray over everyone's weeks ahead and we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together. In your name, amen. Amen. Lockie Morgan, thank you. Thank you for thank you for everyone for listening and joining with us and we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 A Mustard Seed Creative Production.